Dodie Gadient was an American school teacher, and she decided to travel across America to see the sites that she had taught her students about. She traveled alone in a truck with a caravan in tow, and one afternoon when she got near Sacramento, in rush hour traffic, the water bump, pump blew on her truck. She was tired, exasperated, scared, and alone. And in spite of the traffic jam, no one seemed interested in helping her. She was leaning up against her trailer. She prayed a prayer. Dear God, send me an angel, preferably one with mechanical experience. And within a few minutes, a huge Harley Davidson drove up, driven by a, an enormous man with long black hair, a big bushy beard, and tattoos all over his arms. And he without even looking at Dodie, went to work on the truck. Within a few minutes, he flagged down another larger truck, attached a tow bar to the disabled vehicle, took it off the carriageway onto a side street where he continued to work on the water pump. The intimidated teacher was even more dumbfounded to, um, was, was actually too dumbfounded, should I say, to talk. Especially when she read the, the paralyzing words on the back of his leather jacket, which said, Hell's Angels, California. And noticing her surprise at the whole ordeal, he looked her straight in the eye and mumbled, Lady, you don't judge a book by its covers. <laughs> With that, he smiled, he closed the bonnet of the now-fixed truck, straddled his, hard, straddled his Harley, and disappeared as quickly as he appeared. About 12 years ago, Julie was driving home from school, she drove up uh, John Street, which is opposite the manor house there, and she could hardly believe her eyes. A young man was coming out of the manor house and walking down the road wearing a baggy T-shirt, ripped jeans, and pink fluffy slippers. <laughs> Who could this strange character be? We found out a little bit later that this strange character was some, someone who had just started dating our daughter. <laughs> and then got married to our daughter, and today is assistant pastor in this church. Have you still got the slippers? The point of those two stories is that it's so easy to make value judgments, isn't it? You know, over the way that a person dresses, or their manners, or their lack of eloquence, or their lack of education... And in chapter 2, uh, James has told his readers not to make value judgments on the people that they see coming into their worship meet meetings. Basically, what he was saying to them is, uh, don't judge a book by its cover. And James has got some more to say to us in chapter 4, uh, which we'll go on to in a few moments' time. I'm sure that uh, many of you, probably most of you, have watched the television series entitled, Who Do You Think You Are? It's where a celebrity, celebrity traces their, their family tree back, often with a measure of suspense and intrigue and often with tears as they discover uh, what has happened in the past with their ancestors. And very often there are some surprises in store. And uh, that, of course, makes good television. Who do you think you are? Is also a question that some people get asked by someone else who think that they are acting above their station. And, you know, to be asked that question, who do you think you are? 
is actually a little bit of a put-down. Quite a, quite a big put-down, actually. Who do you think you are? And very often those words are spat out with a measure of disdain and disgust. Meaning, you think you are someone special, do you? I remember once when I was in high school, and I was acting up a little bit, and um, I remember one of the teachers saying to me, Jonathan, who do you think you are? In other words, you're getting too big for your boots. And that, uh, that sports teacher, Brian Evans, his name was, it was probably right. And as I look back, it's, it, it was very embarrassing. It was embarrassing at the time. But I can remember those words 40 years on. So if, Brian, you're listening to the podcast this morning, thank you ever so much for that rebuke. And uh, I heard those words loud and clear. Now, I suppose that James could have used those same words, that question, who do you think you are, to the Jewish Christians that he writes to, particularly in chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. And he challenges them that they too were acting above their station in life. In fact, they were acting as if they were God himself. So let's read what James has to say. Chapter 4, verse 11. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? You see, by judging fellow Christians, they were acting as if they were God. And in essence, James is saying to them, who do you think you are? And in these two verses, James provides us with a number of reasons why both first century and 21st century Christians shouldn't judge others. Firstly, judging others is the devil's work. Now you might say, and I can understand it if you do, you might say, Steve, in those two verses, where does it mention Satan or the devil? It doesn't. I'll come back to that in a moment and I'll explain. James is telling us that they were slandering one another. And James is actually condemning here a spirit of criticism and judgmentalism and backbiting. That's an interesting word, isn't it? Backbiting which speaks of injury which is caused when the other person's back is turned or when they're not present. And James says here in verse 11, do not slander. And the word slander in the Greek text of the New Testament is the word diabolos, from which we get the English word, any, any guesses? Diabolical. Diabolical, absolutely. Diabolos is the word for slander, and it's, well, to tell you the truth, it's always diabolical. But diabolos also was used for another word which was translated into our New Testament. And that is the word devil. So devil is diabolos, but he is the slanderer or the accuser. And whenever we put people down, we are probably doing the devil's work for him. Because that is the devil's work, that work of maligning and smearing and discrediting and demeaning. 
And when we criticize other people behind their backs or bad-mouthing them, then we are probably more like the devil than at any other time, and that we are doing his work for him. Jesus spoke of the devil in John chapter 8, verse 44, and he called him the father of lies. And in Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, one of the names given for the devil is that he is the accuser of brothers. You know, slander is very, very damaging. Damaging to the work of God, it's insidious, it is very difficult to fight against. And it was um, Socrates who once said that when the debate is lost, slander becomes the tool of the loser. Isn't that right? And you see, as Christians, we need to make sure that we are never slandering others. And we need to make sure as well that we don't do it under the guise of prayer. I'm sharing this with you in confidence so that you can pray about it. You see, if we're careful, if we're not careful rather, a prayer chain can turn into a gossip grapevine very easily. It's not gossip, we may say, I'm just sharing my concerns. I'm not negative, I'm realistic. I'm not unreliable, I'm flexible. And you see, we need to be very, very careful not to excuse our sins by relabeling them. Two of the greatest accusations made against Christians are probably, and, and against the church, is that they are hypocritical and judgmental. And those two are connected. And sometimes that is true. And sometimes that's the leader's fault for creating a church atmosphere of legalism and judgmentalism. And sometimes it's not the leader's fault. Sometimes it's the fault of those who are part of the congregation because when they go home, along with their roast beef, they have roast preacher for lunch. <laughs> but can I say that nothing empties churches quicker than that spirit of judgmentalism? And most of us avoid critical people because we know deep down that if they are critical behind the backs of others, then who are we not to experience the same lashing of their tongue? Rick Warren tells the story of a guy who came to his pastor and, the past, and he said to the pastor, Pastor, I only have one talent. So the pastor asked him, what is your talent? He said, I have the gift of criticism. <laughs> the pastor reminded him, that, uh, reminded him of the guy in Jesus' story who only had one talent. He went out and buried it and suggested that the man should do the same with his one talent also. And I would say to you this morning, that if you feel that you have the talent of criticism, please go and do the same, will you? Go out and bury it somewhere. The next thing that we see in these verses is that judging others is against God's law. And James reminds his readers that by criticizing and judging others, they were actually criticizing and judging God's law. What does he mean by God's law? Well, in chapter 2, verse 8, we looked at this some weeks ago, where James writes about the royal law of loving others, loving your neighbor as yourself. And that is, we should always act and speak in ways that will cause the blessing of other people. Uh, and slander, gossip, and negative criticism are all calculated to do the very opposite. Paul writes to the Ephesians, and he says in chapter 4, verse 29, Do not let any, uh, any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful in building others up. Underline that. Only what is helpful in building others up according to their needs, 
that it may benefit those who listen. So, by saying that judging others is against God's law, what in effect we're saying is, it's against God's heart. It's not God's will for us. It's out of keeping with who he is and who he desires us to become. Thirdly, judging others is the prerogative of God alone. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbour? And James here is showing that the ability to read another person's heart or correctly analyse another person's actions, that belongs to God and God alone. And it's not for us to play God. And this for two reasons. Firstly, we are sinful and commit sins like others. If I were to ask this morning for a show of hands, how many of you are not sinful? Well, you know, that would, we would not have a hand raised here. And we know that. Do you remember Jesus' response to the religious leaders who brought that woman who was caught in the act of adultery? And they brought this woman before Jesus and asked, what shall we do with her? Putting Jesus in a tight corner. And Jesus answered, he that is without sin, cast the first stone. Reminding them that they could only start throwing stones when they were perfect themselves. Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 to 4, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said to his disciples, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? And Jesus here is challenging those people who are judging others harshly for their minor offences when they themselves have perhaps major flaws. And I can imagine being one of the disciples, hearing Jesus talk about this, chuckling at the very thought of this. There is a sense of amusement of this guy with a gripping plank out of his eye trying to do a splinter inspection on the next guy. That's a ludicrous, extreme illustration. And it was meant to be. Here's this guy, he's puffed up, self-inflated arrogance with this great big tree coming from his eye trying to help someone else. You see, it's important to see that Jesus as well in this is not ruling out constructive criticism. Jesus in the next verse says this, You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will, be, you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. In other words, what Jesus is saying there is that, yes, it is our business to take splinters out of our brother or sister's eyes. But there's a right way and a wrong way for doing it. And it's no accident, I don't believe, that Jesus here is using the analogy of the eye. Because you know what it's like when the finger comes anywhere near your eye. You close your eye, 
straight away. And constructive criticism of others is always a, a delicate operation. We need great sensitivity and we should never, ever, 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 ever perform that surgery in a, in a condemning way. But with humility, understanding, sympathy, and with huge dollops of generosity. We should be a little bit like a mother who attempts to move a speck, to, a speck of sand. I'm sure you mothers here have done that to your children when they've come with their, perhaps at the seaside, when they've had a speck of sand in their eyes and you take such great care. You console them. You get the, your clean handkerchief out and with the corner of your handkerchief, with great care, you do that. And Paul writes to Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, correct, rebuke, and encourage. I'm ever so glad that he follows this on with those words. With great patience and careful instruction. We do have the responsibility to take splinters out of eyes of others, but we need to do this with great care and patience, with the right attitude, to do it biblically. I haven't got time this morning to go into uh, Matthew chapter 18, but... That is so key. Read that when you go home. From verse 15 to the end of the chapter. That we discover the process of splinter removal. And it always starts with person to person encounter. Face to face. Not Facebook. Okay? So many people get that one wrong. I am amazed at the things that are on Facebook. I'm on Facebook myself. I think that... It has its uses and it's, it's, it's great to keep in contact with people all around the world. But it's a lot of nonsense on there as well. Not only, you know, this is my dinner, I'm having this at the moment. Yeah? Sorry if I've offended anybody there. Perhaps you put something on this morning. You know, this was my breakfast. I don't know. I haven't seen it if you have, okay? I'm just saying that. I'm not getting at you. But many people, they put all of their rubbish on, thinking, you know, sort of, uh, poor old me, all the world will come and sympathize. You know, it's, it, 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 you wouldn't come to the front of the church and, you know, sort of spill the beans on everything what you're feeling, would you? And some people do that on Facebook. No, if you've got a problem with someone else, it's not Facebook, it's face to face. And very, very importantly, if you're going to mess with other people's eyes, you need to make sure that you've got clean hands yourselves. Yeah? Four quick steps. <clears throat> Number one, examine yourself before being tempted to inspect others. Two, confess your own faults before confronting someone else. Three, try to understand the other person's struggle. We don't do that enough. And four, remember that the goal is always restoration, not retribution. It's not a get at people. It's not a win an argument. It's not a get one over on them. But it's always restoration. Remembering that we are to offer mercy because we have been offered mercy by God himself. So judging others is the prerogative of God alone. We are sinful and commit sins like others and we are not in possession of all the facts. I'm going to come to an end 
and coming to land in probably five minutes or so. Please don't time me. But before then, I want to tell you three stories. Three quick stories. One from the life of John Wesley, who was the founder of Methodism, as, as many of you know. And then two are from an American pastor, writer, theologian. Uh, many of you have read his works. Uh, it's Charles or Chuck Swindle. And I'll let these stories speak for themselves. I don't think that you will miss their point. Firstly, John Wesley. John Wesley spoke about a rather well-off man that he had very little respect for. And he considered this man to be miserly and mean. He was a man of great wealth. But one day, when this man that he despised had contributed very little to a worthy charitable cause, Wesley rather ungraciously openly criticized him for being so tight-fisted. And after the incident, the man went up to John Wesley privately and told John Wesley that for many weeks he had been living on parsnips and water. He explained that before his conversion he had run up huge debts and now he was skimping on everything. He was buying nothing for himself. He was paying off his creditors one by one. And then he said this to John Wesley. Christ has made me an honest man. And so with all these debts to pay, I can give only a few offerings above my tithe. I must settle up with my worldly neighbours and show them what the grace of God can do in the heart of a man who was once dishonest. Wesley apologised to that man and asked for his forgiveness. What might that story teach us? Rhetorical question, I'm not expecting an answer. The second story, Chuck Swindle, a great preacher. He, was, he, he told of a time that a, a man came up to him before a conference and the man said to him that he had looked so, so forward to listening to, uh, to, to Chuck Swindle. And it was now his delight after many years to come and hear him in the flesh. And that evening, Chuck Swindle noticed that the man that spoke to him about his desire, his delight of coming to listen to him, was actually in the front row and asleep. Swindle thought to himself, well, perhaps he was tired. He's been on a long day's journey. But then the same thing happened the following evening and the evening after that. And Swindle found that his exasperation with this man was growing. I know how he feels. <laughs> on the last night of the, the conference, the man's wife came up to Charles Swindle and apologised for her husband's lack of attention uh, to the messages. She explained that he'd been recently diagnosed with terminal cancer and the strong medication that he was on to ease the pain made him extremely sleepy. But she said that it had been one of his lifelong ambitions to hear Chuck Swindle before he died and now he had fulfilled that goal. I'll leave that story with you too. One more story. 
Again, Charles Swindle, among many others, have told this story, an apparently true story, I'm not sure if it is or not, uh, of a young lawyer who worked for a sizable law firm in Texas. The head of the company was a traditional kind of boss that he had a special ritual at the American Thanksgiving, and he would call all the staff members in. And on the large walnut table of the boardroom, he set out a row of turkeys, one for each member of his firm. And each person would come forward, pick up the bird, announce how grateful he or she was to the work of being able to work for such a marvellous company and to be thankful for the gift. There was, however, a, a young lawyer working for this company, single, lived alone. He had no need for such a huge turkey. But he did what was expected of him. He, he walked up, he received the, the turkey, spoke of his gratitude to the boss for giving this gift and also of how wonderful it was working for a company like this. But that year, his close friends had a, a bit of fun. They played a practical joke on him and they replaced the turkey with one made of papier-mâché. They weighted it down with lead to make it feel genuine and wrapped it up like the real thing. On the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving is always on a Thursday, everyone gathered in the boardroom as usual. I have got that right, haven't I? That it's always on a Thursday, yes. Everyone gathered in the boardroom as usual. And when it came to the turn of the young lawyer, he stopped, he picked up his large package, spoke of his gratitude for the job and his turkey. And later that afternoon, he was travelling on a bus on his way home, great big turkey on his lap, wondering on what on earth he could do with this. Um, a rather discouraged man sat next to him on the bus and they got talking about the upcoming holiday. The lawyer um, learned that the man had been job-seeking for the whole day and he couldn't get himself a job. And... Um, he was quite depressed and he had a large family and he didn't really know what he would do about Thanksgiving the following day. The, the lawyer struck up a brilliant idea. He thought, well, today is my day for doing a, a, a good turn. I'll give him the turkey. And then he had second thoughts. Well, this man isn't a scrounger. He isn't a freeloader. He'll probably injure his pride. If I give it to him, I'll sell it to him. How much money do you have? Oh, a couple of dollars and a few cents, the man said. I tell you what, I'll sell you this turkey for what you've got in your pocket. Okay, said the man, sold. The stranger handed over to him the two dollars and a few coins and he was moved to, de moved to tears, thrilled to death that his family would have a turkey for Thanksgiving. God bless you, God bless you, the man said as he got off the bus, waved him goodbye. Have a great Thanksgiving tomorrow. I'll never forget you. The next Monday, when the young lawyer got back to the office, his friends were dying to know the reaction to the turkey. You can uh, not imagine for a moment how mortified they all were to hear the story of the man on the bus. For the next week, that young lawyer got on the bus every day to find the guy that he sold the papier-mâché turkey to in an attempt to right his wrong. His search was in vain. And probably to this day, that guy who bought the turkey still believes that this well-dressed professional man who sat next to him on the bus, who heard his troubled story, intentionally sold him a papier-mâché turkey for his last couple of bucks and the loose change in his pocket. The one thing I think that we can be certain of 
is that man would have judged the young lawyer. At face value, he would have believed him to have been a con man of the worst kind, having no thought or feeling for the poor, unemployed man with a large family at Thanksgiving. That was the third story. You see, James, in effect, what he is saying here to his first century readers and to us, is who do you think you are? Stop playing God. You're in no position to judge other human beings. Judging others is never a good thing for a whole load of reasons. Number one, we don't know all the facts. Number two, we mere humans are unable to read people's minds and motives. Number three, due to our own sinfulness, we are always prejudiced and we are never objective totally. Four, one day we will be judged by the same standards we use for others. Jesus said in the, in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And the measure that you use will be measured to you. Five, before we are tempted to judge others, we need to remind ourselves of God's mercy to us. The most forgiving person is often the one who, has, who is the most forgiven person. The most forgiving person is often the one who is the most forgiven person. And only God sees and knows all. So let us not play God. I'm done. I've eventually come into land. But I'm just going to read you a poem, if I may, as I finish. And um, it's entitled, The Cookie Thief. A woman was watching at an airport one night with several long hours before her flight. She hunted for a book in the airport shop, bought a bag of cookies and found a place to drop. She was engrossed in her book but happened to see that the man beside her, as bold as could be, grabbed a cookie or two from the bag between when she tried to ignore to avoid a scene. She read, munched cookies and watched the clock as the gutsy cookie thief diminished her stock. She was getting more irritated as the minutes ticked by, thinking, if I wasn't so nice, I'd blacken his eye. With each cookie she took, he took one too. When only one was left, she wondered what he'd do. With a smile on his face and a nervous laugh, he took the last cookie and broke it in half. He offered her half and he ate the other. She snatched it from him and thought, Oh, brother, this guy has some nerve and he is so rude. Why, he didn't even show any gratitude. She had never known when she had been so galled and sighed with relief when her flight was called. She gathered her belongings and headed for the gate, refusing to look back at the thieving ingrate. She boarded the plane and sank in her seat and sought her book, which was almost complete. As she reached in her baggage, she gasped with surprise. There was her bag of cookies in front of her eyes. <laughs> if mine are here, she mourned with despair. Then the others were his, and he tried to share. Too late to apologize, she realized with grief that she was the rude one, the ingrate, the thief.